1: Welcome back to the show, Ridiculous Historians. Thank you, as always, so much for tuning in. Uh, The title of today's show, I think, really captivated all three of us from the jump. So we'll just, uh, what if we just say the headline, and then we'll figure out what the heck we're talking about. Uh, Noel, today's episode is called The Great Michigan Pizza Funeral.
0: Now, Ben, I've certainly heard of a pizza party, but not a pizza funeral.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, same, man, same. Uh, Super producer Casey Pegram, off mic, and we are going to put the spotlight on you for this one, Casey, uh, said, what <laughs> what'd you say, Casey?
0: Two great tastes that go great together. Pizzas <laughs> and funerals,
1: yeah. Love it. Casey's got... That Monday morning energy.
0: Yeah, and Casey, I mean, it's something that I think we all thought when we saw this headline. Uh, is this a funeral that lightened the mood by serving the mourners pizza? You know, there's so many questions when you see this topic, but it turns out that's not the case at all. And it really is, as I said to you off mic, uh, pretty much exactly what it sounds
1: like. Yep, that's correct. Uh, this this story has, has a lot to unpack. So, Let's start with food contamination. At some point, uh, statistically speaking, most everybody has run into some food that's gone off or that's turned or maybe even has become contaminated with something dangerous like salmonella and kale or listeria in ice cream. This is not a laughing matter, uh, but it does get us to a very weird situation in the 1970s. Uh, This concern over contaminated food is what led to the Great Michigan Pizza Funeral. So let's let's get into it. I like the way Atlas Obscura describes this, Noel, when they say, quote, the story of what became known as the Great Michigan Pizza Funeral is one of loss, terrible maladies, and spilled marinara. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: for sure. And, and more than a little bit of savvy PR spin uh, from an Italian immigrant or— shall I say, a Fiumian immigrant, but we'll get into what that means in a second, by the name of Ilario Mario Fabrini. Um, Ilario, we'll call him Mario, just as his friends called him, we're all friends here, uh, fled fascist Italy for the United States to start a new life for himself. And um, he originally lived in uh, what used to be its own little state, uh, called Fiume, and I'm not going to lie. I'm going to cop to it right away. When I was first reading this stuff, I read that as Flume, and I wanted so badly for him to be a Flumian who hailed from the failed state of Flume. But it was not to be. It is Fiume, which is also a beautiful name, but I really want there to be a magical place called Flume. But it is now a part of what is currently Croatia, uh, and it initially became autonomous in 1719. Uh, but it was, you know, kind of under the whims and wiles of different emperors and kings, and kind of got kicked around It lost and regained freedom multiple times over the course of the 18th and 19th centuries.
1: Yeah, yeah, and for anybody who's saying I also want flume to be a word, shout out to the Australian musician, DJ, and record producer Harley Edwards Streeton, also known as Flume. I don't know how you handle the a or the e in the pronunciation at the end there.
0: I'm not sure either, but I think it's also spelled the same as that cool water ride uh, at Six
1: Flags called the Log Flume. Ah, uh-huh, yeah, yeah, throwback there. So the story of fume. Uh, is a story of uh, ups and downs. It's a roller coaster for a Six Flags reference. By 1868, this was part of the Kingdom of Hungary, asterisk, caveat, technically, because on the ground, and this happens in so many places around the world, on the ground... This is a place where the population is composed of Germans, Hungarians, and Italians, and they all speak this local dialect that's sort of a, um, a mashup, a potpourri of all the members' native languages. After World War I in 1920, Fiume is declared an official free state primarily because the kingmakers and the militaries and the politicians thought it would be a good idea to have a buffer between Italy and what was uh, fast becoming the kingdom of Yugoslavia. So what did Fiume do? When it became sovereign, it doubled down on becoming a melting pot. And according to Tom Topol, nationality was defined mostly by the language a given person spoke. This is where Mario comes in. Uh, as as we said earlier, he came to Michigan from Fiume after World War II. He had grown up under the fascist regime when he was six years old. He was indoctrinated, forced to wear, you know, the infamous black shirt. Uh, and he traveled. This is a tragic story. He traveled to Michigan with his grandfather because his father was uh, killed in World War II. Yes. So
0: as you say, he joined the U.S. Army. Uh, he was stationed in San Diego, uh, and he really liked it there. He he ultimately thought that he would maybe one day retire there. Uh, he served in the Korean War, and then after the Korean War, he and his wife Olga uh, moved to Detroit, where they started a pizza business called Fabrini Pizza, and they adapted a pizza recipe from their you know home country. And tried to kind of Americanize it a little bit. Uh, they described it as the pizza from my country no one here would eat. Kind of reminds me of, like, Americanized Chinese food a little bit. Um, but the thing that he did that was very innovative, and that we totally take for granted now, is he would deliver the pies to customers and not a whole lot of other businesses were doing that. And in fact, he would go on to say that people actually got annoyed at him, other pizzeria proprietors, because he kind of had cornered the market on delivery. And once one person starts doing, and then everyone's kind of expecting it because it really is obviously super convenient. And there really is
1: no better food for delivery than the
0: pizza. Uh, and he was a huge success right out of the gate, right?
1: Yeah, that's right. He was, he was, He was pretty successful, and he was smart uh, to adapt his recipe for American palates. I love that he, I love that he said no one would like the actual pizza they make in his hometown. Uh, I also love that his name and his nickname rhyme. So I'm going to call him Alario Mario because I like the cadence of it.
0: Alario Mario, you too. Uh, he is. Ben, i, I bet really quickly i think you and i would be uh fascinated to know what the real recipe for the pizza was that he thought no one in america could stomach i'm pretty sure you and i would would be into it
1: yeah i was looking it up actually earlier this week i was trying to to fig to drill down into the specifics of croatian pizza in this part of the world uh but the The article where he says that stuff about the original pizza and adapting it comes from Detroit Free Press. And in Mm -hmm. that article on March 6th, 1973, he doesn't disclose the original recipe. Just for everybody wondering, let us know if you are from Fumé and you know the secret of Fumé Pizza. But back to Ilario Mario. You're right, Noel. He is quite successful. He is still in the Army Reserves. And so when the Berlin Wall is going up, this rumor is going around town and going around the military circles of the U.S. that the Army Reserves will be called into service and shipped off to Germany. So he preemptively sells Fabrini pizza, and he doesn't end up going back to Europe. He does end up eventually moving to a town called Alpena, and that's where he restarts his pizza business.
0: Yep, and I got to wonder if uh, what he was—I'm sorry, I'm, I'm hung up on this a little bit. Uh, it is is—it is not out there, so we can only really conjecture. But um, remember on Stuff That I Want You To Know, we had a pretty deep discussion with our super producer, Alexis, about— what Detroit pizza is and her being a native Detroiter uh, was not super aware that it had its own kind of reputation. Right. And it is kind of a rectangular deep dish pizza that is, it's got this beautiful cheese kind of, what do you call it? The crown or whatever around the side, the little raised up little cheese crispies. Uh, And it's actually topped with Wisconsin cheddar cheese. It's kind of interesting. Um, But not clear as to whether uh, Fabrini was one of the pioneers of that. All we know about Detroit style pizza is that it was created by another Italian man by the name of Gus
1: Guerrera. I have a guess about what Ilario Mario may have been talking about when he was saying that people in the US wouldn't enjoy his home style pizza. This might not be correct. This is my speculation, folks. But ridiculous historians apparently. Croatian pizza has one huge distinction. The tomato sauce goes on the side. It doesn't go on the actual pizza. You get the pizza baked in with the ingredients, and then you get like, you know, a little ramekin of tomato sauce. For dipping? Yeah, for dipping, I would imagine. And who doesn't love a good dip? A good dipping sauce.
0: I love a good dip, but give it just give me some cheesy. It's called cheesy bread. That's not pizza.
1: <laughs> right. So maybe, maybe that was what he was uh confronting. Uh after he starts his second business, as he recalls, he says, When it wasn't too busy, I started making pizza and I bought a freezer and started freezing them, and people started buying them from me. So, in addition to being a pizza restaurant, now he's kind of a pizza grocer. You know what I mean? He's selling frozen pizza to go. And we have some statements from his family members, including his son, who uh, told us how this whole process worked.
0: That's right. And I love that his son's name is Hillary. I've never heard Hillary as a male name before, but I quite like it. Uh, yeah. And he would... he. Commented in, in this article that his father would run around all over town, supplying bars in the areas with these frozen pizzas, along with a little pizza cooker. Brilliant! So he could, so the bar proprietors could, you know, supply their drunken customers with that good late night, you know, drunky snacky food right there in the bar, uh, and it was the you know one stop shop. So Alario Mario, Mario to his friends, that's what they started calling him there in Alpina. Soon was was churning these pizzas out, just you know, dozens of them. It was a small operation, but he was getting some notoriety. So much so that the Heinz Corporation approached him to, to with an offer that he couldn't refuse.
1: One he couldn't refuse because it was a really good offer. They didn't threaten his family or Hillary or so on. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Snag a Job. why don't we go big with this? Why don't we scale it up? Let's manufacture frozen pizza for distribution across the entire state of Michigan and Ohio. According to Ilario Mario, this factory could produce as many as 9,000 pizzas a day. So the factory starts production in 1966. Ilario Mario is making, is slinging these pies left and right. He's distributing pizza for years. He's got an assembly line. I never thought of it, but I guess that is a job. People can work in pizza factories. So there were people whose entire job was to take toppings and apply them to pizzas on this assembly line. And then in 1972, a year before the pizza funeral, the USDA approaches Ilario Mario, and they say, hey, we need to talk about those canned mushrooms. You're using on Fabrini pizza. Uh
0: first of all, canned mushrooms, ew. Um, uh, but I get it. You know, he's he's got to keep costs down, but he's not a fan of canned mushrooms in any form. Uh but yeah, they need to have a word with him about the canned mushrooms because in January of 1973, employees at the United Canning Company in Ohio were doing some quality check on their inventory that was about to be shipped when they noticed that some of the cans of mushrooms that they were inspecting had swollen up. That's not a good thing. Swollen cans indicate spoilage. So they had to run some tests, and it turned out that some of these cans contained Clostridium Botulinum, which is the bacterium that causes botulism,
1: which is no joke. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, We're talking about uh, effects on the body ranging from muscle weakness to low blood pressure to, unfortunately, in some occasions, death. So botulism can be fatal. So the government realized they had to act quickly. They went to every grocery store that might be carrying this product, and they removed them from the shelves post-haste, but they knew that wasn't enough they had to go further up the supply chain and find businesses that were using these canned mushrooms in their products that they later sold to the public. And of course, in chasing that supply chain, they run into Ilario Mario's factory, uh, and they run into Papa Fabrini's frozen pizzas. He gets the call from Uncle Sam, and as he, as he later recollects, he knew exactly what was going to happen he saw the he saw the uh pizza sauce slung on the wall instead of writing on the wall huh it's terrible no it's absolutely
0: appropriate he literally saw his entire business life everything that he had built flash before his eyes um, and he just kind of felt this sense of impending doom. But luckily, again, this guy's proven himself to be super thrifty and super sharp in terms of like, you know, being kind of an ideas man. Uh, so he immediately acted and he stopped the shipments uh and submitted some of his pizzas for some contamination tests, uh, which is uh, this is actually really interesting. Something I, I was not aware it was a thing at all. Uh, these tests uh were pretty low fi but they were Fda approved um, the slices of pizza uh, in question were fed to a pair of Fda lab mice uh who who died I- instantly so yeah fabrini decided to round up all of these pizzas that had the mushrooms as toppings from all the local restaurants and grocery stores um, thankfully I mean this wasn't quite an operation of scale yet. Like, this wouldn't have been a massive recall. Uh, It was relatively, you know, manageable. Um, But still, you know, quite a few pizzas involved.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. This is what we mean when we say quite a few pizzas involved. By the time the botulism panic sets in, Papa Fabrini's pizzas are being produced at a rate of tens of thousands every week. Tens of thousands of pizzas. He's got 22 full-time employees. They've invested pretty heavily into the factory, right? They have sunk cost here. This scandal could bring his pizza empire low. And this leads to the day, March 5th, 1973, where he handles this, uh, this dilemma with a Bernays level of PR acumen. He didn't technically have to destroy these pizzas. Let's be clear about that. He did not have to destroy them. But after those FDA tests with the mice, he said, I'm going to do it anyway. It's the right thing to do, but I'm going to make it a thing. I'm going to have a little fun with it. So he gets some people together in a farm in Michigan to watch him hold a funeral for 30,000 frozen family size mushroom pizzas. They're burying these pizzas. Uh, the mood is described as this, we didn't write this, but it's lovely. The mood is described as somber and a little cheesy, the governor shows up. The governor speaks at the funeral, William G. Milliken, uh, and he talks about having courage in the face of tragedy. And then the, these bulldozers, because again, it's 30,000 pizzas, these bulldozers start, I guess, ceremoniously, respectfully shoveling these pizzas into an 18-foot hole. This feels like something you would see in Fargo. You know what I mean? The show, the program.
0: No, it really, really does. It's charming and kind of macabre, you know, at the same time. And again, thirty thousand pizzas is nothing to sneeze at. But it, you know, if this had been a much, much, much larger like global operation, this could have been, you know, millions of pizzas. And uh, it it really did make a splash, even nationally, drawing drawing television and radio coverage. Uh, the owner of the farm where they uh, buried these pizzas in that eighteen foot hole. Uh, had this to say, I guess by next fall, there won't be anything but the cellophane. Uh, that's cool, but it's also, you know, that's kind of burying trash in mm. uh, on his farm. Uh, maybe he didn't think of it that way. but yeah, they 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 used a pickup trucks, i'm I'm assuming. They had to have been like garbage type trucks if they're sliding pizzas out of the trucks into the grave. It had to have like a ceremonial tilting of the truck beds <laughs> or whatever. But maybe they just pushed them out manually or or used some of those those what do they call those peels those pizza things you stick in oh, the ovens. Oh yeah, I believe yeah. That's what, that's what they're called. Yeah, they're called. I only know this Ben because I may have told you I was once a uh, I was once not a bad uh, pizza maker. That's I right. used to work in the Mellow Mushroom. Uh, for 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 a few years when I was in college, and I could toss a I could toss a pie in the air, do the old flip, toss a mean pie. I could toss a mean pie, <laughs> and so uh, the pizzas were committed to the earth, mm-hmm. the Michigan
1: earth. <laughs> and Alario Mario Fabrini does two things that I think are really classy. First, he does turn it kind of into a pizza party. He's giving out free, fresh, non-botulism-contaminated pizza slices to anybody who attends. And then at the very end, when these 30,000 mushroom pies are buried, Ilario Mario Fabrini gently lays a two-colored flower garland on the grave. Red flowers for the sauce, white flowers for cheese. And there was a, a, a whole posse of important people at this funeral, which is so weird because you imagine they would be busy, right? The governor of Michigan probably has other stuff to do. Chamber of Commerce members are there. Presidents of banking are there. And uh, Fabrini said, it sort of makes you goose pimples about America, which means, I guess it means it gave him chills. And then the governor said, "Alario Mario Fabrini is an example for all of us. Uh, and then... The the least classy people in this story are the people who tried to fake botulism poisoning for money. At least, uh, according to uh, UPI, at least 17 people tried to say Fabrini's Pizza, Papa Fabrini's Pizza had given them botulism, but uh, nobody... Nobody believed them, mainly because they were lying. And he had a lot of support from the community, you know?
0: I mean, he seemed like a stand-up guy, A. And B, Ben, this wreath situation, I mean, it, it gives me kind of the feels. This is mm. a man who truly loved pizza.
1: <laughs>
0: yes, it's beautiful. And there's another reason that these, uh, these,
1: these people were not to be believed, isn't there, Ben? Yeah, they were making it up. That's the thing. Uh, And how do we know they were making it up? Here's the issue. It turns out Fabrini's pizzas were not, in fact, contaminated with botulism at all. Like, at all.
0: Yeah. False alarm. Oops. Despite these claims from these garbage people that they had, they'd become ill trying to bilk this man out of some settlement money I imagine perhaps a lifetime supply of free frozen pizzas um yeah he he did all of this stuff uh and 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 copped to this thing that wasn't even real uh in the two weeks between that recall and the funeral itself uh the pizzas were vindicated turns out the mushrooms in The supply chain that that Fabrini had been part of didn't have botulism at all. And those dead mice, remember those guys? They apparently had died for some other reason, not botulism at all. Again, you'd think that that goes to show what an imprecise test that was. Uh, Some other rodent illness took them. Seems very coincidental that it took both of them. Mm-hmm. Um, they and Matt Fabrini, in very good spirits, told the Associated Press, I think it was indigestion. Maybe they didn't like my pizza. I love this guy.
1: I love oh this guy. Oh, my God.
0: What a sweetie.
1: Yeah. So he he's still having a tough time. Of course, there's always going to be the fear of bankruptcy when something goes this far sideways. And we have to understand that... The we're we're at a wonderful time to be pizza customers. Uh, it's much better now for pizza fans in the U.S. than it was in the 1970s. Back in the 1970s, there was a, a pretty small market for this kind of pizza. Alario Mario Fabrini, God, that name is so fun to say, Alario Mario Fabrini, says this he said in those days you have to understand the space in the grocery store was not more than five or six feet for frozen pizza. Today you have hundreds of miles of pizza in the grocery store. In the old days to get space you had to fight for it. And I'm I'm just I just picture him putting up his hands like like a prize fighter when he when he talks about this. This episode of Ridiculous history is brought to you by Snagajob. I had a lot of uh, land yachts that I loved. I had Pontiac, yeah, El Camino, right? Oh, I never had an El Camino. My dad had one. And that was, a, that was a real interesting use of our collective time, keeping that thing running. But I think these cars all kind of speak to us because they were such a fundamental part of our lives. Do you remember when I had that Monte Carlo? That's what I meant. <laughs> I said El Camino and I meant Monte Carlo. and more of everything. Limited time special offers await at AvalonWaterways.com. So his sales took a bit of a dive and in a pretty small market compared to what we have in 2021. Uh, he had a, about a $30,000 cost just in terms of materials for the pizza he had to bury. And then he lost more money trying to bring new flavors to the grocery aisle and to the stores to replace mushroom pizza, which obviously people weren't super into. Um, And it was was tough because, you know, after the pizza was pulled from the store shelves, there were a bunch of other pizza makers waiting in the wings to move into that little five or six foot spot in the grocery store. So he was having a tough time. He had to lay people off too. He's gonna have to lay people off, and you know, it
0: just goes to show. I don't know. Remember when Chipotle had that botulism scare? Isn't that what oh, yeah. it was? Yeah, I believe Lister, yeah. it was listeria, maybe. Listeria. But it was in the it was in the lettuce, and again, it wasn't because like they were you know unclean or, or were like you know ha- had some kind of health code violations. It was just a, a tainted batch, you know. And and it, and it's it's sometimes those things get through, and they weathered it pretty well. But that's also a much much larger operation. Um, this was not that. The, uh, Papa Fabrini's frozen pizza, Chipotle was not. And uh, it, Fabrini said that when the pizza was pulled from the store shelves in the first place, those competitors swarmed in like like locusts, Ooh. and they just ate his lunch literally his pizza lunch and Fabrini had to call in his children to work in the factory um because he had to lay off those people uh but that just it wasn't enough to keep the operation going and things just kind of went downhill from there um one woman he said sent him five dollars to help out because again he was more than just like a figurehead you know so some sort of chef boy rd figure like he he was a a human being people knew him in the community and uh, people wanted to help him out they didn't want to see his business fail but it it basically did
1: yeah oh and uh Quick clarification there, Chipotle. Uh, if, if just in case the Chipotle legal team is tuned in to today's episode on the pizza funeral, it was an E. coli outbreak. I think that's the one. That's, that's the, one. the yep, one. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay.
0: But I believe it was from tainted lettuce, though, if I'm not mistaken.
1: I think that's correct. Yeah. Yeah. And this is no ding on Chipotle because you find yourself as a food manufacturer having to source so many things, just like Ilario Mario Fabrini, which. The more I say it, it might be my favorite name we've ever talked about on the show. <laughs> he gets he, here's the thing there's one other twist. A few days before the pizza funeral, Fabrini sues the creator of those canned mushrooms for a million dollars and he wins this lawsuit but the money wasn't enough to keep the factory going because uh, according to Fabrini he says we didn't get a million dollars we got 250 grand the lawyer took a third of that so we had 100 grand worth of bills just to keep the company going for five or six years 1980s early 1980s they sell off papa fabrini's pizza and he says he walks away from this crazy adventure with about 5 grand And the new company and their new pizza recipe failed after the sell. There's a cool epilogue, though. There's a cool note here. After he sold Papa Fabrini's, Alario Mario Fabrini finally made it to his happily ever after. Remember way back when he was in the military, he dreamed Mm -hmm. of retiring to San Diego? He actually did it. How cool is that?
0: That's very cool. San Diego is beautiful, and he deserved it. He really put the work in, and I'm so glad that he was at least able to spend his twilight years in comfort uh, in a place that he had always dreamed of.
1: Yeah, yeah, and he still makes pizza at home. As of 2017, uh, he says his favorite toppings are anchovies, pepperoni, green peppers, and—wait for it—mushrooms— uh, he also he also talks a little bit of trash about pizza in Italy, which I thought was so interesting and unexpected because you would expect the opposite, right?
0: Yeah, that's a, i am I'm gonna I'm gonna okay, you know, different strokes, but uh, I, I would argue that nothing beats a, a true good old Sicilian slice.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's absolutely true. Uh, Fabrini says, in his opinion. Most American, the pizza most Americans eat is better than what he gets in Italy because uh, pizza originated, per him, in Italy from leftover dough when parents were making bread and then it, it was flattened out and was used as a quick snack for children. And Perhaps we give him the last word here. He says, if you go to Germany and you order from a menu, they don't put Italian pizza on there. They put American pizza. And he says, sure, it was started by Italians, but we make a better pizza today. These are fighting words, Ilario Mario. I'd be very careful. And we don't want big pie after us. Mm -hmm. So we're just being very clear. This is what Ilario Mario Fabrini said, not Ben Nolan Casey. Don't, Don't send big pizza after us.
0: It is true. Uh, we are just reporting the facts, uh, as as always. Uh, but to put a nice little coda on this, this wasn't the last pizza funeral that, that ever would be. It turns out that that other type of potential thing that a pizza funeral could be actually is a thing uh, at a particular funeral home called Krause Funeral Homes in uh, the neighboring state of Wisconsin. Um, and uh, Mark Krause who uh, is the president of the funeral home, decided that he wanted to have a little extra comfort to uh, the funeral uh, proceedings in the form of free pizza. Uh, He told USA Today, people don't think about funerals until they really need them. So we asked ourselves, how do we get people to relax about the idea of thinking about this difficult topic ahead of time? The answer, food. People are relaxed and open where they're surrounded by food, he said. You think about everything you do in life. It always centers around food.
1: And that's what caused Krause Funeral Homes, which have four locations in Wisconsin, to host what they called pizza and pre-plan parties. So you're showing the benefits of why you would want to pre-plan a funeral, which can be quite expensive. It makes sense to to be prepared for that. Uh, And while you're doing that, while you're talking to the funeral directors and and the rest of the staff at kraus you're all splitting a pizza together because mm-hmm. pizza does make everything better i mean that's true. that's true
0: unequivocally true. Uh, and again, I'll always associate the idea of a pizza party with uh what was it called? Book it. Book it. Yes. Yeah. Book it. It was a scholastic program. I think all three of us experienced when we were kids where if you read a certain number of books at the end of the year, you got a pizza party. That was the thing you looked forward to all year. What oh was yeah. That man. Pizza party. Uh, you know, and I, I, I'm honestly, I into the idea of a pizza funeral, not let's just take it to the next level. Not just the pre-plan, I would be honored if at my funeral, uh, people served like a really nice spread of various uh, maybe Sicilian pies.
1: I am for normalizing eating snacks and many more situations. You know, I, I can't remember if I mentioned on this show, but one of my dreams has always been to uh, be at a politician's press conference, you know, for some reason we have this thing in the U S where whenever a politician is saying something important, there have to be like a dozen people standing behind them, not really doing anything. I want to be one of those guys and like partway through the speech, I want to take like a bag of uh, a bag of potato chips, maybe a pizza now or an orange and just like still nodding somberly like snack on it while are talking about whatever they're talking about. Mm-hmm. I'm not really mm-hmm. eating. That's just an audio sound effect, folks. <laughs> but, but but you're right. Pizza makes everything better. I am so impressed with Ilario Mario Fabrini and I uh, I got to say this is this is such an interesting story, you know. And it's one like as we approach lunchtime, it's one that I'm sure the three of us are thinking about constantly uh Noel, i don't want to think about your funeral nor yours casey nor my own but i do want to hear what about the weirdest pizza parties our fellow ridiculous historians have been to book it's still around by the way i shouted them out one time in a previous episode they sent me a t-shirt did i tell you that? i told you that right what yeah i want to book a t-shirt hit them up on twitter Tell them Ben sent you.
0: Maybe I will. I need to mess with Twitter. That's how you get all the free stuff is tagging people on Twitter. Nobody responds on Instagram. You get no free stuff for Instagram. Uh, All right, Ben. All right. Challenge accepted, my friend. Uh, And this has been a fun episode. I mean, you know, because nobody really died, right? Nobody died. And there was a funeral. You get all the benefits. because You know, funerals are kind of fun. It makes me think of Harold and Maude, the the lovely... uh, hal ashby movie where uh harold goes to funerals you know for fun just to hang out and, and watch them um so there is something a little bit fascinating about funerals but it's nice to be able to experience that without having to be sad about somebody dying it was just a bunch of frozen pizzas
1: yeah a hundred percent agreed here noel uh thank you as always to our super producer casey pegram cooking that hot podcast pie weekend week out That sounded better in my head. Also, thanks to Alex Williams, who composed our amazing soundtrack
0: huge thanks to researcher extraordinaire, Gabe Luzier, uh, Christopher Haciotis, who will soon be joining us. I think I've been teasing that one for several weeks now. We need to make that happen. There has been talk. We just got to get the calendars to line up. Also, of course, Jonathan Strickland, uh, AKA the Quister. Uh, may we, may, may you never darken our zoom again, sir, but I'm afraid that that's just not possible.
1: Yeah. We'll wrap this up, uh, just in case he's going to zoom bomb us again. Uh, you're, you may have a pizza story of your own. We definitely want to hear it. And you're, you know, shaking your fist at the sky saying, how can I talk to these guys? Well, good news, folks. You can find us uh, all over the Internet, not just as a show, but as individuals.
0: That's right. You can find me on Instagram where I am at how now Noel Brown.
1: And you can find me on Twitter where I am at Ben Bolin HSW. You can also see uh, some cooking misadventures on my Instagram at Ben Bolin. No, what a ride. What a ride. Croatia. Tomato sauce on the side. I didn't know that's something you could do with pizza and have it still be considered pizza, you
0: know? Uh, again, I, I sort of call shenanigans on that. It is, is, in my humble opinion, cheesy bread. We've got to go find out for ourselves. It's true. We'll see you next time, folks.
1: True story, the intimate ships of Avalon Waterways can go where the big ships can only dream through winding passageways of rolling vineyards and castled hills into the heart of timeless cities and storybook villages. That sounds like a delight. See how Avalon's smaller ships promise greater discoveries, fewer people, and more of everything. Limited time special offers await at Avalonwaterways dot com. Happy Pride from Tomboy X